Hello and welcome to the Stalk and I podcast for solo parents and those considering solo parenthood by donor conception. I'm your host Mel Johnson, the solo parenthood coach and solo mum to my five-year-old daughter. Series six of the podcast is focused on solo parenthood stories and speaking to a range of solo mums about their path to parenthood. Thriving solo members also get access to members-only podcast episodes from industry experts and donor-conceived people. Last month's episode was with Leah Gilman about her new book covering research on egg and sperm donors. This month's episode is a much-requested topic from those who have boys. It's with donor-conceived Joey, who was raised by a solo mum and gives the male perspective on his experience of growing up being donor-conceived in a solo parent family. You can listen to those episodes and all other Podcast Plus episodes by becoming a thriving solo member. Today's episode is with solo parent to two, Kirsten. She talks about her experience of raising two donor-conceived children as a solo parent, as well as a decision to use double donation. Kirsten, so nice to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining. Before we get into it, would you like to give yourself a bit of an introduction? Okay, so I'm Kirsten. I've got um, sort of I'm to two two littlies, um, Alex, who is just about three and a half, and Neve, who is about nine months now. I work at a school up in uh, up in Scotland, and yeah, not I don't know. That's that's me. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. What was your decision making process to become a solo parent? When did it all start? Oh, many years ago now. So I'm I'm now 41, <laughs> I have to remember. I can um, never remember. Well, after no. 40, it all blurs into one, doesn't it? <laughs> it just goes downhill. I'm just like, whatever, I'm something. Um, I'm 41. I probably started thinking about it when I was about 34, so quite a while ago now. I probably when I was probably about 32, 33 is when you start having those thoughts of, oh, I wonder if things will turn out. I, I, you know, I, I, I better hurry up if I want to kind of find the man, settle down, have kids when I was about you know started looking I suppose initially for, for the man struggling with that so I suppose when I was 34 I started investigating it as a possibility um it wasn't so much online then you know so many other podcasts or, or blogs that you could find to learn about it but there was there was a few so so I started kind of thinking about it I would say I took about a year to properly decide I gave myself that time. I wanted to give myself that time. I said to myself, you know, when I was 34, I thought, well, let's do it. Then I was like, no, give myself a year, which was rightly or wrongly in hindsight, but give myself a year to live live it in my mind a little bit, as in keep checking back in with, right, is this what I want? This particular event that's happening right now in my life, what would that be like as a solo, solo mom? Is that something that 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 I'm willing to go for? What are the sacrifices involved? You know, that that those kind of thought process. So yes, yeah, so when I was 35 was when then everything kind of I, I kicked off the process. It was a bit of a longer process for me. It, it took a while to actually fully conceive. It ten, turned out that I had a very low egg reserve. So I did three IURIs before they properly registered that because I did that when I was going into an IVF and then we realized how low it was. Um, so so that's kind of was the was the sticky wicket in it all um so did they that you didn't do any fertility tests before you started IUI no I because well I did um what did I do you did the tubes they, they checked my tubes they didn't do my egg reserve but predominantly because at that stage there wasn't anything that really indicated to me that I was likely to be have a low reserve you know I was having a regular cycle you know when they had done the tubes and things they could see that there was follicles there you know so they, they didn't really we didn't really realize till after and obviously once you do one or two IUIs it's still in the business of well statistically yeah. it might work statistically it might not so it was after three that I said right let's try IVF and again we weren't expecting it to come out low there wasn't anything in my IUIs that had suggested that in terms of the numbers of follicles that I developed on Clomid and things so it was quite a kick to the gut when you know the result came back because it was a surprise so we did then, yeah, one round of IVF because I thought, well, let's try it, see, so that I know in my head, is it really as bad as all that? Because AMH is sometimes right, sometimes changes. You know, there's lots of it's different stories It's an indicator, there. but it's not the absolute, is it? Absolutely. It's one thing, isn't it? So I thought I'd try, but it was a total bust, <laughs> my one round. I, you know, barely, barely managed to get kind of one egg out and it was very poor quality. So I, I kind of I decided at that stage to 
well, I took a few months to think about it, um, but went with donor eggs as well as the donor sperm. So, so that kind of then obviously delayed because I had a waiting list uh, about about six months, five or six months to wait for the first donor. Um, unfortunately, that didn't plan out to anything. <laughs> so then I had to wait another six months for a second one. But, you know, things work out as they're meant to work out. As it turns out, the, the, you know, the second one was a, a fresh donor. She, it was a good amount, a really good amount of eggs came through. So it left me with spare embryos, which left, which left me with the option of going for a sibling, which I probably wouldn't have had otherwise as an option. So things work out as they're meant to work out. But it just, as I say, took a bit longer to get there. Yeah, brilliant. So, so many questions, Kirsten. So going right back to the beginning. So I know hindsight's a wonderful thing, but I think it's useful to talk about it just for Mm, the people who are listening to see what they would do. Would you now recommend for people to have the AMH test before? Before, Even, I suppose, you were saying you waited the year. Would you have done the test, like, literally first now? Uh, Yes. Yeah, I would recommend to anybody who, who thinks about it now to say, well, just, look, go get all the tests, know what your situation is so that you know, like, for example, I gave myself that year. Was that right or the wrong thing to do? I mean, I, th- I think it was the right thing to do for me in terms of committing to the process to give myself that time. However, I would have preferred to give myself that time in the knowledge of what the implication of it could have been. Because you could have been thinking about egg donation in that time as well, couldn't you not? Or you could have said, maybe I want to do um, egg collection now to see. And then then wait and see. There would would have been lots of other avenues. And I think, you know, as it stands, my AMH was so low that I actually think that had, I I don't think the year actually would have made a significant difference to me. Um, But yes, I would always recommend if it's something that's in the back of your mind, this is something I want to do. I I would always say now, you'll get the tests, know, have the knowledge. So then you can be making an informed decision about what you're doing. Because you've got the data then, haven't you? And that just helps you understand what your situation is and what the options available are to you. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And so then when you tried the first round of IVF and realised that that didn't it it wasn't going the way you wanted it to go how did you feel did did they say to you one consideration would be donor eggs had you thought about that before or was this a brand new idea I mean I'd known about it because obviously in the clinics you kind of you, you know it's an option um in my mind before then I had all, always kind of said no I, I, it's not something I could go down that route because I'm already using donor sperm that would be too much um you know, and sometimes I do still question, I do, do still think to myself, you know, I've now got two lovely kids, but their genetic history is unknown completely. Um, so that is still something that that plays on my mind a bit. Um, but yeah, initially I had thought no, because I would want them to have 50% knowledge of their genetic history. I think after the IVF and it was a complete, you know, it was a complete bust, the, the consultant, he said, you know, that would be the now recommendation. And he was lovely. He wasn't trying to push it. He was just saying, this is, you know, statistically, we would say, you know, you you are unlikely to, to, to produce viable eggs. There's never a never in, in IVF, as you know. But you consider other things. You consider time, how many cycles you want to go through. You know, at that stage, I'd, I'd been doing a lot of cycling up and down. And I lived three and a half, four hours away from my clinic. So the cycle was a lot of up and down the road. Yeah. Um so it wasn't so straightforward to keep doing that. And that's also an emotional investment, it's a time investment, it's a financial investment to keep trying with your own eggs. So it was the most sensible recommendation from the doctors to say, look, now now is the time to consider donor eggs. So yeah, so I took a bit of time to think about it. And I think I, yeah, I just came to the, the mindset and probably fairly at that stage, emotionally invested in the process. And I think once you're quite emotionally invested, it is like you're you're on the journey. And you're getting to the destination and that's that's all you're focused on. I think I've heard a lot of people in that situation say exactly what you said yeah. that at the beginning they say no I probably wouldn't go down the donor egg route particularly for solo parents because like you say mm. 
you've used donor sperms so then it's completely unknown genetics but I think also very common is then being on the journey and then and changing your mind about that so I think again just to share as a reassurance for people I think many people start off thinking that that's not necessarily a path that they wanted to go down but when you're in that journey uh, because you're so invested in it now you can't imagine life without you, know, you can't about... you can't and it's it's that old saying isn't it you know the what what is for you won't go by you it's an old Scottish saying and it's it's kind of that's something I've often lived my life by and just said well look this is just this is just what I've been dealt this is this is the steps I need to take I'm committed and I know that I do want to be a mum I do want to have those children you know I had considered adoption and things like that but then felt adoption is is something that People throw into the mix very quickly when somebody's struggling to conceive and they say, oh, have you tried adoption? Have you thought about that? I know somebody who and they're very happy. But it always comes across as a bit of a plan B or a backup. And I feel like that's not giving the right respect it should give to the kids involved in adoption. I think Mm -hmm. if you, you know, they come from their own difficult background to start with. And I don't think you should go into that as a I couldn't do that so I'll do this I think you go into adoption because that's what you want to do so I didn't really want to go down that path because I felt that wasn't quite what I wanted you know never say never I mean I could well have got there but I felt that first off I wanted to kind of try for my own kids so yeah I think I I managed to find some um, kind of videos or interviews with some donor conceived adults at that time there was less out there than there is now and most of them spoke more about knowing early being an issue than genetics being an issue so I suppose that reassured me in my mind of thinking no okay most of these these people that are speaking aren't talking about not knowing their genetics having been a problem for them but more about the the ways in which their parents managed the telling them the talking to them about it and I was like well that that's all within my control that's all something I can measure so that was quite a big deciding factor for me as well when I realized actually no maybe I'm not personally somebody that's hung up on genetics. I obviously had some pretty rubbish genetics for my uh, fertility. So maybe it's a good thing not to be <laughs> passing those on to, uh, to to my daughter. You just, yeah, you, you go through that process and then it, it, it's an option. The clinic offers it. I think it, it it's difficult a little bit because it's nowadays, it's actually so much more expensive right now as well. Since COVID, the prices of all of these things have gone up. Would I be able to take the same decisions of going for the two? I, I don't know. You know, at that point it was a stretch financially, but it, it was manageable but you know so I'm glad I did it then pre-COVID because I think now it's, it's all the clinics seem to put all their prices up it's, it, it, that does make a lot of those decisions more difficult I suppose because you're adding in more financial thoughts to it which is so hard because you yeah. just don't want finances to be a reason no. that people can't no. have children it's so hard isn't it it's so hard and it's just something that you think gosh like I mean I did I, I tried not to think about how much I spent on it all overall I just, try not to, to sum it up in my mind mm-hmm. and actually a lot of the money I spent on it I probably wouldn't have had I know it sounds weird but I wouldn't have had otherwise because you know in six months if you try and save a lot of money over the course of six months and you're really dedicated to doing that you can actually save quite a lot of money that you wouldn't otherwise by just not mm-hmm. spending mm-hmm. and by living on you know lentil and bean chili <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. amazing what you could do when, when your mind goes to it so there was a lot of the finances to the IVF did come from in the moment while I was waiting I was like right well I'll just cut out this spend cut out that spend cut out this spend so you almost would have like flitted it away otherwise um yeah yeah. probably I mean I I, yes definitely I would have had more savings now than then but had I not but I wouldn't the the total sum I spent on it I probably wouldn't have actually had yeah yeah, so that's amazing. how I like to think about it. That's yeah. a really, it's a really nice way to think about it, actually. What sort of things did you, what sort of considerations did you have when making the decision to use donor eggs? And I only ask about donor eggs because so many of the people mm-hmm. I interview talk about donor sperm. So yeah, I think absolutely. it's just more interesting to, to discuss um, any specific yeah. considerations on donor eggs. So it was interesting when I, uh, I'll talk just a little bit about sperm, because when I picked the donor sperm, I'd, I'd had in my mind, oh, it would be nice to have, you know, somebody with blue eyes because I have blue eyes. And I thought, well, that would make more likelihood of kids having blue eyes. And I think it's, it would, wouldn't, like, I want, don't want to hide the fact that, that they don't want to conceive to anybody, but I also don't want to make things more difficult for them. And I thought in my head, I was like, well, if there's some physical similarities and then we'll get fewer questions and they'll have to ad- address fewer questions. Then when I ended up picking the donor sperm, it was somebody with 
with brown eyes simply because I liked his his write up so much. I was like, well, that's more important to me. You know, looks aren't actually that important, and the particular write up he'd given, I felt was really important. So I went with that. But then I think when I flipped that on the head, and I was thinking, don't want eggs. Strangely enough, it became again quite important to me to think, could it be somebody that had some again blue eyes, some physical attributes to me? And it was, and it was maybe more of a thing in my mind for eggs than the sperm because with the sperm. Um, well, when I was deciding it, as, as, I, as I say, I work in a school and I was doing parents' evenings. And I remember one parents' evening sitting and and obviously, you know, the parents all come in and sit in front of you. And I spent the whole evening looking at them and looking at the kid and going, how like do they look? Would I, would I guess that that's their mum and that's their dad? Do they look more like their mum? And it was a really funny process a little bit because it didn't really help me answer my question because ultimately kids sometimes look like their parents and they sometimes don't. <laughs> Even with siblings, yeah. if you look at siblings, sometimes you think, gosh, they look, one yeah. looks really like yeah. and the other doesn't. So yeah, yeah you're right. It, it's, it's, yeah, there's no way. So so I suppose that helped me a little bit think, okay, that's less of an issue. Um, but then ultimately with, with donor eggs, in terms of picking it, it I went to a smallish clinic, you know, up in Scotland, there's, there's really one private clinic that, that operates these things. Um, so if you're not planning on going abroad, you go through them and, you know, their, their, their banks are are smaller, you know, so you, you're looking at a, a group, a pack of four or five individuals um, to make your choice from. And if you're going to be too worried about that, you're going to be waiting on the list for too long. And so how does yeah. the process work, person? So you choose the donor sperm, you went on the waiting yeah. list for donor eggs. And then what happens when you get to the top of that waiting list? So the way my clinic worked, they give you a, um, you get a letter that says you're nearing the top. So you can expect to hear from us in the next month or so. And then, and then you get a call and it's, it's pretty quick from that, from that point on. The first person I did, they, they asked me to go down. I did the meeting there because I had to do the consents forms to cite myriads of forms you have to do. So when I was doing the consent, she said, well, we'll look at the, at the people that are on the list and they just had a little folder that they brought out I think maybe with your larger banks maybe you get more information but as I say it was because it was just the clinic in-house quite limited info you know height eye color hair color a little little pen and it's, interestingly a smaller pen portrait for the donor eggs and I don't know why they did this for the donor sperm the they had him write a couple of paragraphs or something mm-hmm. But for the donor egg, it was more like this was the form that the nurse filled out while she was talking to the woman. And then she right. she filled out the details on her behalf. So it was much more limited. I don't know why they did it differently. Yeah. So then you get the form and, and you decide. And, and that's kind and of it. how so, many options did you have? So the first time around, as I said, it was there was maybe four, five, maybe six, six women. I went the first time around, I went with the frozen eggs package because it was confirmed in terms of how many eggs you have. Mm-hmm. The second time I went for a fresh cycle, mm-hmm. the difference is a little bit in in that because you're betting on something a little bit, you're gambling a little bit when you're picking somebody, and that's what makes it a bit difficult. Mm-hmm. Or they gave you their AMH and they gave you whether they already had kids as well, mm-hmm. um, so you could know that. The way my my clinic offered it in terms of packages, you paid for if it was a fresh cycle, they would say because at any point you know they could you could get no eggs herself you know she could have good fertility but still not not manage to achieve anything so they have certain kind of cutoff points where they say well you'll get your money if back if at this point there's nothing to be had but there's a certain point once it got to egg collection that if they get one or two you're in you know you're financially you're all in and they had two options you could either pick to say I'll share the cost with somebody else so that they, they would say to you we'd guarantee you or we wouldn't guarantee but we guarantee you up to six eggs and if we start collecting more than that, we then half it. No, if they get, it's not if they get more than 10, if they get to 11, they half it. So when they can do a, a package of six and six, they'll half it. Because most people don't need that many eggs, you know, because you end yeah. up with embryos left over. And then they would, I suppose, sell that cycle twice because they've got the two packages. But if they don't get 12 eggs, then if you even if you've paid for half, you get all the eggs. Right. The alternative is you pay double and you get the full cycle. You get all 10, 11, 12, 13, however many Gosh, come out. so hard to decide. So you, yes, you have to decide at that point, but it's double the price to pay for 
the full. Yeah, so that that's a decision to take. I ended up deciding to go for the half because it, it was expensive and you don't normally need more than six. Mm-hmm. It's difficult because I'd say the, I'd had the embryo, the frozen package before, which was five eggs, and they had only gone to, only one ended up at blastocyst stage and then and then it didn't take. So I suppose in my head, I'm thinking, well, people say five is enough, but actually it wasn't enough. So, so I went with the half, but actually the, they, they collected 11 eggs from her in that cycle, which meant I got all of them, mm-hmm. even though I paid the half, which yeah. obviously then increased my odds quite significantly yeah. of something working. And so, how how does a fresh cycle work? So is it that you're preparing to transfer at the same time that they're yeah. having their collection? Yeah. So you go through, um, I suppose, the equivalent of what you would go through for a medicated frozen embryo transfer. Mm-hmm. Um, so they 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 started all off at the same time. So you're timed with the donor. So you both start, you know, the down regulation. Um, the only difference is you don't get any of the stimulation to stimulate eggs. Obviously, mm-hmm. if he gets that, you get the progesterone to stimulate your lining mm-hmm. to develop. And then you get various updates along the way. I can't remember if I got, I don't think I got, you know, the calls of this is how many follicles she's got, just mm-hmm. scans. I don't think I had any of that. But they did, I remember them calling, you know, this is how many eggs we've collected. And then and then you kind of have that kind of day three call of this is how, or day one call of this is how many have made it to the next day fertilized you know and you go through each stage and this is how many are now left so it was and it was a funny stage because most of the news in that cycle was quite good news and I was quite used to quite bad news and them calling and going oh yeah there's only one and oh yeah so um it was it was a different stage for me to kind of suddenly have them say oh yes there are 11 and nine of them are fertilized you know I was like really wow I don't know about you, but I remember specifically in great detail, like having those calls. So I remember I lived in my other house and I can remember exactly where I was standing and talking to them because it's so significant. And, And I don't think it's talked about so much those calls. And so I was very naive to it at that time. So I had 18 eggs collected. So I thought, happy days, 18 eggs. I'm laughing here, but that those 18 eggs, yeah. every day that they called me, it's they were like yeah. a massive drop. So with yeah. mine, they were like, it's 18 eggs, right? 12 of them have made it to the next stage. And but they were saying it in a really positive way. And I was and I, and I was like, well, what happened to the like, other ones? Yeah, yeah. Like, um, and and ultimately, and this yeah. is why numbers, it's important to talk about them. My 18 made three embryos. Yeah. And and I know other people who had three eggs that made three embryos. So yeah. and this is why when you've frozen eggs, it's very difficult to know what guarantee yes, that's given me. I yes. would have obviously felt very confident with my 18 eggs, and someone who only had three would have probably felt a lot less confident. But we could have got exactly the same outcome out of them when you put them with sperm. So it's um, but it's hard listening to those um everyday telling mm-hmm. you what's happened if it's not as positive as you want it to be so it's, it's a really difficult particularly when you before because as you say they don't really talk as I mean I think maybe they did talk beforehand of some statistics of this is how many we expect to drop off at this stage and I can't remember I think they had done or I think at least I had a knowledge of it maybe I'd gone away and researched it or investigated I'm a bit of a researcher on things so I think I did, but even then it's 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 tough hearing. And it's the same with IUIs, you know, even when you're going in for your scans and it's like, how many follicles are there? You know, it's a Yeah, it's hard. It is a real emotional roller coaster. And I think you really have to just commit to the idea of it's about the process, it's about the yeah. each step is just a step along the way to the end goal. The end goal is becoming the mum and you might take a different route to get there, you might take a longer route to get there. You just have to stay committed to if that's my end goal, that's my end goal. And if it's meant to be that this particular cycle is a bust, then that's what that's meant to be. It's a really you good know, way of looking at it. Yeah, it's 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 challenging in the moment, right enough. It it can be. Yeah. Um, and I think it's you approach different cycles in different ways. And I remember when I first did it, when I first started doing the IUIs, you know. You, you're monitoring everything everything's being checked and you're like you're, do, you're taking all the vitamins and you're thinking oh I'm not gonna have a drink of wine I'm not I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do you know you do all of that stuff but you know my first successful cycle or well, Alex's cycle and bearing in mind you know by this stage I'd had the three IUIs I'd had the IVF 
that had failed. I'd had the frozen donor egg that had failed. Actually, the first embryo from the fresh one didn't succeed either. It went to um, a missed miscarriage. So got a pregnancy positive, but at the eight-week scan hadn't progressed. So by this stage, I'd had quite a lot of bad news along the way. So the cycle that it came to Alex, I just didn't actually think about it at all. I just went down. I had my transfer and all of the, you know, am I taking this this vitamin and this extra vitamin? Am I doing this? I didn't even think about it. I I, I didn't even, because I just couldn't. I didn't actually have the, I'd also started a new job, so I was busy, but I didn't have yeah. the emotional capacity to invest in that way in it. By that stage for me, it was, I have to go through the steps and just see what happens at the end. And then I can think about it once I get to that stage. So yeah, you go through different different processes of thought around conceiving. Yeah. And it changes as you go. And so with this one, so you were having these calls for them to give you the news of what had happened. Mm. So what was the end result in terms of what happened? And the eggs, so from, from the 11, I ended up with, I think there were four day five blastos and then there were three that she kept and they developed at day six. Okay. Um, And you had one of them fresh transferred, did you? One fresh transferred, and then that one didn't take. So that left me with the six. Yeah, then one transferred later from a frozen. But they were a lot, they were A grade ones. Like they'd come out in the grading really well. I was positive by that stage that out of the six I had left, Mm -hmm. I had in my head, I was like, out of that many blastocysts, there's got to be one. Hmm. it's just now a process of getting to that one did actually take about six months maybe a bit longer six or seven months after the miscarriage before going for the next transfer again I'd started a new job so I I had actually felt a bit bad if the first one had worked because I would have been going away quite quickly so um, I thought it was good to stop so I I took some time off I took a good holiday at Christmas time my last kind of solo break (laughs) plus I couldn't take another Christmas with family which is another thing that you know is, is challenging a lot when you're going up and down is those those big family events yeah and attending them when, when when things aren't working for you become quite difficult yeah um so yeah I went away I went to Finland for Christmas and did husky sledging oh uh, nice <laughs> it was it was great and it's quite, quite nice because you almost feel like you have got a as much of a reassurance as you can have because you're in a pretty strong position at that stage I was like yeah I can have a break I'm in a strong position I'm no longer counting the days in terms of times and quality of my eggs um you know I I feel like I can take that process slower because it's embryos that are banked that were good quality ones of a a young woman so you know statistically there was a good chance that something was going to come from them um that's advice that I do often give people if they're not ready to transfer they're not ready to have a baby the only time you're committing to possibly having a baby is when you transfer everything up until that date you're not actually making that final decision so actually you can go through with a lot of this stuff and then stop at the point of transfer and and then time isn't as much of the essence then because the time is with the egg you could just freeze the embryos or freeze the eggs I mean I think there's a a, pure embryos you've frozen you've got a better I think you're in a better position than freezing eggs because as you said earlier those eggs none of them are really guaranteed to anything mm. and I, I think there is a bit of a misnomer out there nowadays you know a lot of people talk about I froze my eggs so now I don't need to worry and you know I, I worry when I hear that in the media because I think actually that's not necessarily the case you don't know I was having know, this exact conversation with my coaching clients to say freezing embryos gives you so much more knowledge and so why don't you unfreeze your eggs put them with sperm and see what happens and lots of people want those eggs as a comfort blanket but it's not real you think it's a comfort blanket but you don't really know how useful they are to you until you put them with sperm and see if an embryo will be created but I think it's it's probably a good test of people's minds of whether they're committed to the solo mum journey or whether they're actually thinking that's my backup I'm still wanting to meet someone so I still want to keep my eggs to yeah. use for somebody I could meet whereas once you've made embryos you've got a different ball so game true. because it's like well now if I were to meet somebody I would say to them I've got something frozen but it's not your sperm so yeah at that stage I suppose is making a commitment to the solo mom journey it's just maybe the time scale of the solo mom journey you have Very control over. 
I suppose. So what number transfer was it that you then got pregnant? It would have been, it It was the second transfer out of that fresh cycle. Okay. So was Alex and then the third transfer was, was Neve. So, um, so, so numbers two and three eggs worked well. <laughs> And, but, and that's a whole other conversation that I want to have with you. So you had Alex, and we'll talk about that in a minute as well. But then how old was Alex when you thought, actually, I do want to try for a sibling? I, I mean, it's always been in my mind of, I'd like to have siblings, but the actual feasibility of it, I'd, I'd been on the fence about. And I think it was... I remember distinctly, and it was probably about the age Neve is now, so eight or nine months. I remember distinctly sitting with Alex, and you know, babies—they give you this look. People, I don't think people tell you that the way that babies look at you, just like you're their whole world. Yeah, you have that little puddle, and there's just this little look in their eyes. And I remember sitting with him, and I'd had, you know, thankfully with Alex, um, a fairly straightforward pregnancy, a fairly straightforward maternity leave you know I hadn't had significant you know colic and crying and and challenges like that it had been relatively straightforward so you know my first maternity leave it was all very as much as we were locked in the house under COVID rules it was a little cocoon of me and him and it was this lovely little cocoon of the two of us and yeah I distinctly remember sitting and him looking at me and me just thinking why wouldn't you want to do this again like and it was just that question I was like why wouldn't I want to why wouldn't I and I think it was then that I probably committed in my heart to it and thinking yes probably took a bit longer in my head to commit just because I would have to figure out finances also kind of felt that you know there is a pressure still you know there's a work pressure and you think gosh am I going to be the person that goes away maternity leave comes back for a year goes away again you know when you're in a kind of a management role I mean in any role to be fair but you know you feel like that there's a judgment on you for doing that which is awful, um, but a lot of people awful say thing. the same. Yeah. But I, I think you feel that. I don't think you should feel that. And I remember thinking that and almost then having a stern conversation with myself. <laughs> the, the, yeah. you know, the feminist in me came out and said, hang on a minute, Kirsten. if you want to live in a world where there is greater equality and greater equity, then you have to live it for yourself. True. And part of living it is saying that we shouldn't be asking women to not do things because of pregnancy and motherhood. We should yeah. be accepting and we should be challenging the workplace to work around it. You know, I, I'm in the boat where my boss, my manager is a, is herself quite a, quite a, um, you know, she's a fighter for equal rights as well. So I kind of Brilliant. knew that, that would go down. Okay. Yeah. She was a little bit less. Um, and, um, I, I mean, I think she was a bit annoyed. Like I can, I can read her emotions quite well, but that she wasn't annoyed with me or the situation. She was just like, Oh gosh, how am I going to manage somebody coming back and going? And yeah. you know, she's not always great at, <laughs> not having her emotions come out she says the words of congratulations but you're like you're kind of annoyed but um <laughs> yeah <laughs> but you have to forgive that you know she didn't say it so you have to kind of allow that but yeah so I had that chat to myself and said no and then and then then I worried about finances and thought wow this is then taking money away potentially from Alex because you know there's the whole process of trying again for the transfer that's expensive maternity leave is expensive continuing for another few years on like I've dropped down to part-time work continuing for another few years on that stops me saving as much does what does that mean for you know means that I won't have the money to spend on holidays or all of this stuff it would stop my career progression slightly not not completely but for a few years it kind of pauses career progression um you know and then I just ultimately thought I thought well in 20 years time if I get to the stage that Alex says to me, what were the, you know, and I hadn't gone for it. And he says, what are the things that meant I didn't have a sibling? You can, I think you can speak to them about, I wasn't able to, or I tried, but I couldn't. Yeah. It, those are difficult times and difficult conversations and a difficult space to have in your own head to, to accept that. Yeah. Um, but I felt I couldn't say to him, well, do you know what? I had the embryos, they were good quality. I could figure out the finances. It just meant that we didn't go on holidays. I didn't want though you know those things to be the reasons why I didn't try yeah when I just when I had decided it was the right thing for us and that I thought I could manage it what's really interesting is you saying that you looked at Alex and in your heart knew um because I also originally thought that I might um try for a sibling because I wanted Daisy to have a sibling 
but I didn't have that feeling it was mm. only mm. for Daisy to have a sibling I don't think you can do it when it's just for a sibling for for the child because you'll always that there are big sacrifices to having a second yeah for yourself individually and for how and for your relationship with your older child the sacrifices yeah. you have to want that yeah. for yourself it has to be the right thing for you as well yeah. as the right thing for them and isn't it interesting because you do have a battle with yourself because the reason I don't want to have another child, a lot of it is selfish reasons because I really like my life. I like my life with Daisy and the balance that I yeah. have. And 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 I and I couldn't imagine going back to now the baby stage. Uh, but I do feel um, at times guilty about not having a sibling. But like you say, I don't think that's enough of a reason to do it. I don't think so, because I think you can have that as a conversation. I always just imagine it as what is the conversation I would have with Alex yeah. if he says to me. And I think you can have an honest conversation with with kids when they're older, at least, of saying, look, I wouldn't have been the best mum to you. Yeah. I, I, didn't want that. I don't know if we would have created that that family of three of us, because I think that would have changed how I felt about things. That would yeah. have changed how our relationship worked. And I think you can have that as a conversation. And I Very think... True. On the other side, I also had, again, the, the double donor situation coming in, playing on my mind of Alex did, doesn't have any other genetic knowledge That's or any so other genetics of me. So in my head, it was also like, am I really going to tell him that I got rid of all the other embryos that were his genetic link? Mm. Am I really going to do that? I could do that with the remaining ones after Neve. Mm-hmm. I am two and done. <laughs> I wouldn't mm. be the best mum to three. No. Um, I definitely wouldn't manage the finances for it. It would be too much of a stretch. And also I'm getting older. There's also that bit of, you know, how old do you want to be when you have your last? The knees creak a little bit. (laughs) 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 I'm getting up and down off the floor. That was also on my mind because I thought, well, actually, he doesn't have anybody else. Now there is two of them and they mirror each other. They came from the same cycle. They've got somebody else who, and they do look like, I mean, Neve is just the the carbon copy of Alex. Um, Yeah interestingly and this is something to think about for people in terms of the, the odds of look remember I was talking about eye color mm. and I'd ended up with a sperm going for man they both They've have blue, blue eyes, eyes. Both blue eyes. and it's only a 50 50 chance so you never know what you're gonna get but, but so they do. and it is lovely to see them play together it's lovely to see Alex have that that other person that's his person so they that, get on so far so far but then Alex is very much can rule the roost he can just do what he wants and she just thinks he's hilarious she just laughs at him you know he, he, he dances for her and she thinks it's hilarious and just giggles her way around watching him so that's really nice to see I imagine things things change with kids <laughs> well having a sibling myself <laughs> you go through fa- phases of, of whether you're getting on or not I think one of the things that's lucky for me is that Daisy doesn't seem to want a sibling. Or yes. so, I mean, she's only five, so who knows? But at the moment, I know she's some children have asked. Oh, right, and, early, and yeah. Some children really, really adamantly seem to want one. Daisy's yeah. never talked about it. And just knowing her personally for me, I think that she would not want to share my attention with another child. So even if she thought she wanted a sibling, the reality of what that meant, I think, she do it does kind of change a little bit I mean uh, to be fair you know I try and eke out some times with Alex where we have real little cuddles and we talk about it's it's Alex's turn with mummy now and it's Neve's turn with mummy and you know he he does still get that um but it's it's tough work (laughs) to to figure out there's there's moments where you definitely where I leave Neve and I'm looking at her I'm thinking oh she needs a cuddle but actually Alex needs a cuddle and you're drawn between two ways and and that that is more difficult um you know maternity leave with two has definitely been a different thing to maternity leave with one (laughs) so how are you finding two what what is the reality my house is a mess constantly I mean it always was probably a mess I have washing everywhere very rarely actually gets properly put away and even when I do manage to put Alex's away he just takes it all out and leaves it on his bedroom floor so hard to keep on top of stuff practically Practically, yeah. I mean, you do just have to kind of turn a blind eye to some of it and just go, that's just what it is. You know, that's just my life for a few years. That's just what it is. I was fortunate a little bit, I think, in the very early days. Neve was a good sleeper as a newborn. Brilliant. Um, That helped things a lot. It helped things a lot that it was summertime when I had her because 
she slept well, like from, I would put her down at six or seven and she would sleep for six hours for the first couple of months. She doesn't anymore, but she did then. And it was good because I could, you know, summertime, it was hot out. Alex loves digging in his sandpit. So he would dig in his sandpit while I would get her ready for bed, put her down, and then I could give all my attention to him for bath time and bedtime. So that helped. And that won't be the case for all babies. You know, babies are different. Some want to cluster feed loads in the evening. So I, I was fortunate in that respect um, that that wasn't a battle I had to fight. And I could still give that time to Alex. So that made that the newborn stages were easier because of that, because she was quite good for that. But there were then challenges as she's gotten older. You know, she's had quite bad eczema to take her overnight into hospital at one night when she was about four months with it. And that was that was probably the first time that, you know, my heartstrings were really pulled because I had to leave Alex with my mum. He hadn't really stayed overnight with my mum much. He stayed overnight when I had Neve, but not otherwise. He wasn't really prepared for the idea that he was going to stay there mm. and stay overnight and where I was. With her, there was a particular moment where they were going to look for a cannula to put medication in it. So they came and she's this tiny little baby and they're trying to get this needle in her arm and they couldn't and she's screaming and I'm mm. holding her down as to keep her still as you know you, it's just those moments are just mm. awful as a parent. so I'm almost in tears they didn't manage to get the, the cannula in and just after that my mum phoned because Alex was at home and she was trying to get him in the bath and he'd suddenly realized that that therefore meant he was staying and I wasn't coming back so he was upset so oh. she'd thought maybe a video call with Kirsty will help <laughs> just made it worse because he's screaming on the other end of the phone going I want my mommy oh. and Neve screaming and clinging to me for dear life because she's feeling awful because she's got this eczema all over her body they've, they've just been trying to oh it was just and it was just one of those moments and I was just on the edge of tears and my mum said and, and bless my mum she doesn't mean it but she's not got the best tap she never has done and she just went oh he'll be okay he's just needing his mummy and she didn't mean it in a horrible way but of course that was just like daggers into my heart you know you're split between the two so that was probably the first time that it was really kind of emotionally difficult because I just you was you are so split where when you've got one kid you can meet their needs yeah you know Um, the battle is meeting your own needs and their needs at the same time but you're always willing to kind of sacrifice your needs a little bit you know so yeah it doesn't matter but when there's two that you know, you have this challenge of sometimes I can't meet both their needs. Sometimes I have to pick one to cuddle first mm. and leave the other crying. That's hard. You know, that that's a hard decision. And, you know, I don't don't think for a second it's going to have any long term impact on them, you know, because you're still there. You're still saying, I'll be there in just a minute. Let me just do this. But it is hard to do that. And, yeah, there was a learning curve for Alex. He loved having the baby. But yeah, he he struggled with, you know, when you've got a new baby, you're feeding them a lot. I breastfed, breastfed both of them. So that's kind of very much a cuddle between you and the baby and the toddler's like, where am I in this? So he very much got, he got what we called boob cuddles. So I'm brilliant. cuddled the other boob while I was feeding the even he was sitting there like this. But it's things like that I've had to kind of probably do longer than I would have otherwise just to yeah. maintain that feeling for him that the baby hasn't replaced him but that is also challenging a bit for me because you get touched out you get a bit like sometimes you're just like oh for goodness sake will you all just get off me <laughs> you know and, and and there's a lot of noise in the house you know I mean you'll know the three-year-old meltdown hits I know it well <laughs> and, it's, it's, and I cannot imagine having a baby to deal with at the same time as well. Yes. So, you know, my little saving grace over the last few months when Alex has been having a few meltdowns is, is those little loop earplugs. You can still hear them through it, but you know, when yes. yeah, sometimes a three-year-old does, it does just need to scream and cry. They just yes. need to do it. They need to get the emotion out and you can't tell them to stop and you can't really leave them, but they've just got to scream and cry because they're so upset about whatever minuscule thing they're upset about but they are they have that emotion so you can't really stop them and maybe the baby's fussing at the same time and it's really loud and it triggers you it just goes right into your bones doesn't it 
a hundred percent aligned with you I really had to teach myself I've not used headphones actually but I've really had to teach myself to get used to crying because I've listened to a lot of podcasts about it and realized exactly that it triggers me and I just wanted to stop it immediately and that's where I went wrong for quite a long time because I just wanted to stop the crying whereas now it's like no no you can cry if you're sad if that's your feeling if that's your emotion let it out out and then come to me and let me know when you're ready to when you're ready for us to talk about it it out what have you but it is it's difficult for you because you feel your emotion goes and for me it kind of goes and goes and gets into a rage and you're just like raging but there's actually not just you're overstimulated so you need to be able to be that that mum that's you know the it's okay I'll be here when you when you're ready yeah to manage your own emotions so yes those have been my saving grace um when I see him building up for one I just slot them in (laughs) so just builds it a little bit and it it, it, and I've actually noticed when I'm better and more able to be calm around it it's shorter probably one of my favorite podcast episodes ever was with Dr. Ram Lane Mm. and she was talking about the fact that as parents most parents don't want their children to experience any negative emotions so when they Mm. are crying or having a meltdown we we want to save them them from it and we want them to stop um and she said you know you you can let children experience negative emotions it's how you deal with it and yeah it's very interesting to listen to her yeah a lot of podcasts that talk about that it definitely helps and it helps him and he's getting a bit alex has definitely had some emotional times over the last last couple of months Interestingly, when you talk about when when do you pick to have a sibling, I don't think you would pick to have a sibling when you've got a three year old. <laughs> no, no, I think I left it too long because once yeah. you get to three, you're like no can't it's do like, it. No. You almost need to I do it straight I... away, don't you? Before you get to I that. I think so. He was about eighteen months when I had the transfer. Yeah. I, I think if I'd waited much longer than that, I probably would might have, have not changed your mind. I might have changed my yes. mind. There's different ways you have to find, and I think that the difficulty as a solo mum, when when you've got one or two, um, is you've you've not got any built-in um, release from that, you know. And and as much as it's challenging, you know, if you're a stay-at-home mum and you, you've got a husband coming in from work, and you know, I can totally accept they won't always be exactly the husband you want them to be in terms of helping with kids. I know that happens with a lot of my friends, and they they moan about it. But at the end of the day, you still have another adult that if you are really emotionally charged and you just say look I just need 10 minutes to go and walk around the block and come back again you've got another person that that can help you with that whereas as a solo mum you don't really have an option when you see things escalating with emotions you're you're stuck in the house and you've got both of them I think this is probably a theme of solo mums we have to find ways to support ourselves to do the things we need and do you have any time for yourself because um limited my you know my mum and dad live in the village mm-hmm. so my mum will help but she can't really take both of them you know she's mm-hmm. getting older I, I wouldn't ask her to take both she takes Alex out so like yesterday she 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 messaged and she took him around to hers for a few hours and they painted and made scones and oh it's nice so so she's always done that and been been great I've got a great childminder in the village who is like my saving grace when you start looking for you know child care you think nursery versus childminder how wh- which one are you going to do for me the I live out in the sticks, so options are limited. And now, local nursery had shut, so child childminder was the only route. But actually, she's been wonderful um, because she can take Alex. She's like a little second mum to him, so he's really happy there. But she's yeah. also really flexible in that you know, there's been times where I've needed. I don't like the time I had to take Neve into hospital, and then I felt bad about mum having him for so long. Yeah, you know, I could phone Marie and say like, "Have you got capacity tomorrow? Can you take Alex?" You know, right. and she could. She's going to take Neve when I go back to work this time, you know, and again, she can, she's going to actually have both of them for certain times. Nice. So that works. She's got, she's got both, she's got one of them at the, she's got Neve at the minute while Alex is at nursery. So I've, I've built in a, some extra childminder hours before I go back to work just to give myself some, some me time, which would be nice. But no, I get very limited time to myself. You know, yeah. it's just the reality. And yeah. I suppose it depends. Each person has their own support network. But and I do have like my parents are there, my sister is nearby, I've got some good mum friends nearby. But at the same time, when push comes to shove on things, I th- I I think when you commit to having kids, you have to commit to being the person. You yeah. have to say you have to be willing to be the person because as much as it's nice for other people to help and you can rely on them, you can't 
ask them to make the same sacrifices that you would make. So I think yeah. when I had me, my mum and dad weren't that enamoured about the prospect of me having a second. And it wasn't because they don't want to support me. It was because they know they're getting older and they were like, yeah. well, we can't, we can't provide extra childcare. We can't help, help. We won't be able to help as much. So, so you need to know that, you know. Which is a good conversation to have. Cause, and I yeah. had the same with my mum. Because when yeah. I mentioned it in the early days, she looked like a rabbit in the headlights. Yeah. And, and she was like, with the best will in the world, I want to support you, but I will not be able to help you in the same way I have yeah. with Daisy. Yeah. And so much better to know that. Know that. To make yeah. help make a decision with that awareness. Exactly. And I think that was, you know, so that that was probably one of the things that said, well, actually, what do I need to do that makes it manageable for just me? So one of yeah. those things is, you know, going back to work on three days a week. I, I had in my mind set at the time, I thought, well, maybe I just drop down. I, you know, I work as a, a deputy teacher at the minute, which has certain pressures to it. And I was like, well, maybe I drop down to just classroom teacher. Again, you have to think about the salary implications, but yeah. maybe that's the route I take in order to to have the second and I, I was actually that was a, a total plan I thought of and then I realized that um I teach <laughs> I teach modern studies which is just studying the Scottish curriculum but it's like politics and things then I realized it's been a few years and there's been about how many general elections in that time right. <laughs> the resource I have I'd have to be right so I was like actually I don't think it would be any easier <laughs> just studying in my current job but I think you do you have to commit in your head to think well it's nice when those people around it can help me but actually I need to be in it and be honest with myself that it's me yeah. and I need to find the ways to support myself with them around you know it, it, Marie's great to have the childminder she's really flexible and she's not too far away so I don't have a long drive in between you know dropping dropping off and picking up you find what works but yeah ultimately I, I don't get much time to myself but you know yeah. as is as is with everything it's a short-term process it's not for 10 yeah. years <laughs> you know it's like well when they're young they need me a bit more so I'll have fewer evenings I'll have less time for two or three years and yeah. then things will get their their sleep time they'll start to go down like you know Alex now goes down quite happily at seven and goes to sleep and doesn't wake up and gives me my evening yeah Neve not so much but Alex does so I'm like well in two or three years time hopefully Neve hopefully all kids are different so actually it's just a few years and then I'll have evenings to myself and yeah you know I know about me I know I'm a person that if I get at least an evening to myself yeah that's fine I can yeah. I can manage with, with everything else if I get yeah. that time when I don't that's when I start finding things a bit difficult but um and there was just yeah. one other question I wanted to ask you Kirsten just going back a little bit to you know using donor eggs some people worry when they use donor eggs about that bonding how they'll feel will they feel attached in the same way what's your experience with that um I mean yeah it's not something that plays out once you have the kid like you 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 do have that bonding that attachment is there but it is a valid thing to worry about and to think about beforehand I think you have to think through all the possible outcomes and positives and negatives before you go into things it's not something you know and that I've experienced afterwards. It's not something I really worried about beforehand myself, in honesty, because I, I'm much more of a nurture. If you ask me about you know, the nurture versus nature debate, I yeah. always tend to fall on the nurture side. I think, well, no. I mean, if you've carried a child through pregnancy, yeah, that bond is there straight away. Yeah. You know, it really is when you feel them kick, when you feel them this, it's there. You know, I, I had interesting had C-sections for both of them, and again, sometimes people worry after a C-section is is that one there and. and you know that wasn't wasn't a problem but at the same time there's there's things you if it, if that's the worry you have then it's best to think about it and to own it and then so well what what can I do about that what can I do so and there are things you know as as a as a new mum that you can do that can help increase those bonds if you're concerned so for me breastfeeding was always a great a great tool to to have a connection it's not the only way but it, it worked worked well for me but there's also, you know, things like skin to skin contact. There's also things like baby massage. There's lots of things that you can do mm. to help build a connection with a child. And I think that's for anybody. I think even when the donor situation isn't there, there's plenty of young mums that would say, do you know, in those first few weeks, I didn't feel that straight connection, even when right. it is a genetic child. And I, and I think that's something people don't talk about. There's like, there's this kind of weird hollywood story of you open your eyes and see your child and you're hit by lightning and it's and it's overwhelmed by love when really you've gone through whatever childbirth experience you've just gone through you're knackered you just went to sleep 
yeah. you know newborn babies are just squirmy <laughs> <laughs> you know so, so I think it's a really important conversation to have because I think there's a tendency to jump to a donor conception story conclusion whereas yes. actually like you say many new mums sometimes don't feel that immediate bond and I think sometimes we might overthink it thinking oh, is it because they're doing it conceivable actually it could just be um like any other person perfectly normal you know the one thing you you learn with kids is and when they're babies is there's a, a spectrum of what normal is and you sit there you know you, you look at you know when you, your mum you start becoming obsessed with things like your baby's poo and is this normal poo for yeah. two month old and and there's there's a spectrum of it isn't there you know of that could be normal that's not necessarily what a different kid has but that's normal so and it's the same as a mum there's lots of lots of normal things as in pregnancy and as a young mum that you might experience that somebody else didn't experience that doesn't make it not normal it's just different I think it is important to be honest and open and say well that's okay it doesn't matter if you don't feel this really strong connection straight off because um again it's it's the journey it's the process you know it's very few people that that don't have that forever you know and there's things that you can do as a parent and actually you should always do anyway to help build that connection and that attachment um and it's within your control you know and yeah I think that's that's the message probably for me is that it's it's a perfectly valid worry and it's a worry that lots of people have and it's a perfectly valid normal thing to potentially experience in the very early days lots of lots of young mums would report saying you know, I, I didn't, I thought I was supposed to feel, you know, this huge rush of emotion when really the hormones in the first two weeks of pregnancy of um, first, first few weeks after having a baby are nuts, aren't they? I mean, yeah. you're all over the place. One minute you're laughing, the next minute you're crying. You know, you have no. So true. So true. Nuts. So yeah, I suppose that's what I would say about it is, is yeah. there's things you can do, but it, it it's there. It's not not there. And finally, for anybody who is trying to decide, I think specifically whether to use donor eggs, what advice would you have for people? Um, I would say go away and read and research, I suppose, the um the stories of donor conceived people. That's the one thing I wish I'd probably done a bit more. I tr- I tried, but there was a bit less out there than there is now. Um so I did manage to find some, but, you know, go and, you know, obviously your podcast provides a lot of links to kind of now adults who don't have conceived. And I think that's the important voice, just to understand some of the things they're saying. And I think that's a first, that's a very important kind of first port of call um, to understand what could be negative about the process, because I think it's very easy to think um, with donor eggs and with donor sperm, you know, that it'll just all be rainbow and sunshines and, and, I think I think actually also that the other thing with donor eggs is is sometimes clinics maybe can be mine wasn't but I think there can be a tendency to think this will solve my problems I can't conceive naturally I'll, I'll go for donor eggs and have one cycle and that will get me a baby yeah and that's that and it, it, it you know by that stage you're also quite emotionally drained you've gone through quite a lot before you get to the stage of considering donor eggs so you're kind of you're not you know you are just very much thinking quite black and white of of that's there but I think it is important to kind of think through well it might not be the first cycle you know technically it was the third donor egg transfer that I had that 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 was Alex you know so you're committing not just to one thing and again it's saying well if I'm committing to do using donor eggs I'm committing to the prospect of two or three possible routes down there and how do I feel about that can I manage that emotionally um can I manage that financially before I open that door because once you open that door you've opened it you're going so it is important to just think through those things as well and go right am I am I really on board with that am I on board with with you know what what's my opinion on the genetics of it you know I think it is quite important to ensure that you're using um at the very least you know an open id at 18 donor for both yeah um but I think with donor eggs because it's because you're using a double donor I, I think it increases the importance yeah that can be difficult with donor eggs because donor eggs are less accessible yeah uh, so with. more people need to go abroad if you don't there's want a, the waiting there's a great fish to go abroad yeah. um, and once you go abroad you know then suddenly it becomes into the anonymous territory so I think that's why I was saying it's important to make sure you're listening to those voices and and, and taking a beat yeah. take a moment to actually think what is what is the consequence of that yeah and take a little bit of time to sit with it and think about it and think about all the possible 
positives and negatives because once you open the door, you open the door and it's difficult to shut it. So I think it's, I think it is, it's important to think about that. Think about your own time scales of, you know, and I think that's where, as I say, maybe take that break, you know, so that you get a bit of time to live with it. Going away on a holiday before my transfer that was Alex, I think was a, was a good thing for me. Yeah. Um, So things like that are important as well. Perfect. Very helpful. Thank you so much for taking the time and chatting to me. Thanks, Kirsten. No bother. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast and would like to access bonus episodes featuring donor-conceived people, psychologists and other experts, you can head over to my website, thestalkandi.com, to subscribe to the Thriving Solo Membership. For $2.99 a month, you'll get access to members-only episodes as well as the entire back catalogue. You'll get access to useful resources and a monthly community call which are a great opportunity to meet people in a similar situation to you. On my website, you can also find more information about the coaching I offer. You can also follow me on Instagram at thestalkandi.com to get an insight into the realities of solo parent life.